Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. And looking at her, I mean, her head was so swollen. Her eyes were completely swollen shut. There was, it looked like a teardrop of blood running down the side of her face. Hey guys, welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen, who's dressed like a 90s kid. I'm wearing I'm wearing plaid. What's so bad about wearing plaid? Maybe I just never see you in anything that's You've not never black. seen me in not black. I decided because this was a bit of a lazy day slash hungover day. I put on some plaid. You Why just, are you hungover? I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's interesting. Maybe we might have recorded a podcast last night. <laughs> <laughs> we might have got a little bit wasted. We did have a long Wait, can I just make a public announcement that Billy drank all of the alcohol in Alexis's apartment and left me with not even a full beer? (laughs) (laughs) Because then you said you decided that you wanted the other beers and then you also wanted all of the vodka. Yeah. And then also drank all of Alexis's gin before so i was that's right and we and, and we all were looking for the bottle of the gin I'm like, where and is it I, I don't even drink gin where could it be and then it was in the trash can <laughs> because billy drank the entire bottle like last two weeks yeah. ago it was insane yeah. anyways, um, anyways but listen what? this is a lot of work we gotta decompress yeah. while we do this i always have to decompress um before we move on to our day i would like to remind everybody that we're still having our competition for uh, podcast reviews. So go to your Apple podcast app, go give us a review, leave your Instagram in your review. And we're picking two winners every week to give some free merch to. Yes. And you're going to be able to go to the, our merch store, pick anything you want, any size, anything, and we will send it to you. That's right. We will send and it And then out. we want to see you in your merch and we're going to post it. That's right. Yeah. So you better take some cute pics. All right, Billy, what's our day? This is a day I can get behind. <laughs> Happy eat an extra dessert day. Oh, you know what? I can get behind that too. Right. I had a cookie for breakfast. (gasps) I've been doing this recently and I need to stop. Why? Chocolate chip cookies for breakfast with my coffee. Yeah. Well, there's a cereal for that. It's called cookie crisp. I don't like cookie crisp. I'm not a cereal person. Are there any other days? This doesn't speak to me. Yeah. Well, you know what? There's only two other days today. National macadamia nut day. Ew. That's even worse than a cookie. And National Newspaper Carrier Day. Boring. And what's this I mean, other one? Like newsies. For a paper. I used to that's write okay. for newspapers. Yeah. So it's like RIP. I'm kind of into that one. All right. All right. Well, that's enough of that. Let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. September 8th, 2010. Love the Way You Lie by Eminem and Rihanna was topping the charts. I'm Still Here and Easy A were playing in the theaters. And it was a normal day at the apparel company where Marty Hill worked. She led a graphics team and she and her staff were slated to meet at 10 a.m. for a production meeting. As everyone began to congregate, people started to realize that Marty wasn't there. 
In fact, she hadn't come to work at all. Her coworkers found this to be extremely unusual. Marty is a very dependable and reliable and a passionate worker as a graphic artist. And it would be really strange for her to just not show up to work. Right. And Marty was described kind of as a little firecracker. She's really petite. She only weighed about 97 pounds soaking wet, but she was feisty and fierce and she took care of business. She took kickboxing lessons and stayed super active and really loved to work on her fitness. And she was also the kind of person who really didn't let anything fall through the cracks. She was very buttoned up and to punctuate what Jacqueline said, would not not show up to work. Yeah. That's just not her MO. She was also a mother of two. And at this time in 2010, she had a 25 year old son named Steven who had just moved out of the house. And she had a 15 year old daughter named Mackenzie who happens to be our first degree connection today. So as far as personality, my mom is definitely the most positive person I've ever met in my entire life. She's always trying to see the good in somebody or the good in a situation. She's definitely the most selfless person as well, even though she would never admit that or say that about herself. When my brother graduated high school, he had a scholarship to go wrestle. And once he finished college, he actually moved back to Houston to work for my grandpa's company. And so my mom and I actually were the only two that lived in the Prairie Village house. So one of Marty's co-workers sends her a text, thinks that something may have just come up, no reply. And she calls her a few times, no answer, no phone back. So she goes by Marty's house and she gets there. Marty's car is sitting in the driveway. So she walks up, she rings the doorbell, no answer. She knocks on the door, no answer. The house looked empty and she just had a bad feeling. So she went back to her car, called the office and then spoke with another coworker and they both decided, listen, we need to call the police. So the police officer that was dispatched was Bill Baldwin of the Prairie Village Police Department, and he arrived very quickly on the scene. And when he arrived to this area, he he noted that this particular neighborhood is especially quiet. It's residential. It's suburban paradise. And he hadn't been there much because they don't get many calls to this particular part of town because it is so safe. So Officer Baldwin approached the home. He went up to the front door and he noticed that the door was closed but not locked. So he pushed the door open slowly and said inside, it's the police department. Marty, are you home? He said that over and over again. He called for Marty. Marty, Marty, are you there? As he cautiously entered into the home, one of the first things he noticed that caught his glance was a woman's purse filled with belongings on the kitchen table. Officer Baldwin, being a married man, thought about his own wife, how she didn't ever leave the house without her own purse. So now Officer Baldwin believes Marty may actually be inside the home somewhere. He scanned the upstairs rooms and saw no clues that suggested there was any sort of struggle, robbery, or other emergency that may have taken place there. But then he saw a door that appeared to lead to the basement. He began to descend the stairs. So Officer Baldwin, he's about two or three steps from the bottom of the stairs. And he sees a person laying on the floor kind of like in a fetal position, covered head to toe in blood. And there was also a large amount of blood pooling around the person on the floor. He thought it it, it was Marty, but she was unrecognizable. And she was barely breathing. She had been badly beaten and her neck was sliced. Her wounds were described as savage. So the officer, he kneels down next to her and he keeps asking her over and over again, who did this? Who did this to you, Marty? Who did this to you? And he was saying that he wanted to get a dying declaration if that was what this was going to be. He wanted in her last words to say, who did this to him? Marty was rushed to the hospital. And when the trauma surgeon walked in, he saw her being wheeled in on a stretcher. And he remarked later that she was so incredibly battered that he could not tell at first if his patient was a man or a woman 
or if they were young or old and had no idea what race his patient was. That's how much blood was covering her body and how swollen her face and her head was. The only thing that the doctor could see was a lifeless form, but she wasn't lifeless despite her catastrophic injuries. Marty clanged to life as they tried to take stock of her many injuries. As Marty clings to life, word of what happened to her spreads to her family. The night before, I had stayed at my dad's house. Side note, Marty and her ex-husband are divorced. So I woke up, went to school. Afterwards, my dad picked me and my best friend up and took us to her house. I was in my best friend's room at her house. My brother called me and was trying to start small chat. I mean, he was saying, you know, how are you? How's your dad? And I could just tell something was wrong by the tone of his voice. By the time this phone call had happened, it was around 6 p.m. or so, I want to say. And the attack actually happened at 8 a.m. She was there for about four hours before anybody had found her. And the reason that I hadn't known about anything until so late is because they had actually told my family members that did know they weren't allowed to tell my brother or I because of, you know, they didn't want any of the information to get out for the perpetrator to know if he was someone that could be, you know, that could get that information. So what Mackenzie's saying is that the police probably feared it was someone close to Marty. And so my aunt actually went against what was asked of her in not telling us. And eventually in that day said, we need to tell Stephen and Mackenzie. They called him. He called me. He kind of stopped and I said, is everything okay? All he said back to me was, mom's hurt. And I said, is she okay? And I just remember silenced and he said, she's alive. I just, this part I remember so vividly, I just kind of ran. I got up and I ran outside of my best friend's room down the stairs into her driveway and I just collapsed and started bawling. Marty's daughter, Mackenzie, and Marty's mother, Shirley, walk into the hospital. The only thing going through my head was just, is she okay? I need to go see her. As soon as we got there, I believe it was the detectives that had taken my grandma to ask more questions so I was kind of left close to the ICU and was able to walk back and see her. I walked back into the room, saw the person laying there, really just did not believe it was my mom. I again fell to my knees and I remember the first thing I said um, kind of thinking back on maybe the teenage arguments we may have had and I just said I will never be mean to you ever again and obviously you know she couldn't hear me but it was just at that moment where I was just so appreciative of everything she had done for me and looking at her I mean her head was so swollen her eyes were completely swollen shut there is It looked like a teardrop of blood running down the side of her face. And I now know that the hospital was actually very trained in situations like this. So when someone that was potentially involved in a crime scene came in, they knew not to clean them up right away because there may be evidence. That was something now looking back makes complete sense. But what I saw was really just the absolute most horrific sight I I could have ever seen. And the way that I did identify her was I kind of moved the bed sheet away from her hand so I could hold it and I recognized her hand. I mean, that was really the only thing about her that I could recognize. So the doctors are trying to make sense of all of her injuries. What they found was that the major veins, the skin, the muscle on the left side of the neck had all been completely cut through. And the major artery actually had a couple nicks on it. So we're talking millimeters away from having been completely cut through. And for the next 90 minutes, they cleaned 
the wounds and tried to put her back together. But the doctors were still very concerned about her head. So she had the cut, but she had this incredible bruising and swelling to her face. And concussions, which is essentially what she had, can lead to swelling, swelling of the brain. So they could look fine initially or look, look on the surface that they're fine initially, and then the person could die a day later, three days later. So the concussion could be what kills her. And a detective named Luke Roth appeared at the hospital. And when he arrived, there were some key things he noticed and that he was looking for. One was that Marty's clothes appeared to be fully intact. Her bra appeared to be intact, and there were no signs of sexual assault that could be seen in this preliminary phase. And as he's looking for signs of sexual assault, what he's really trying to pin down is signs of a motive. No one knew whether or not Marty was going to survive. And there was a hematoma located behind Marty's ear, which came one millimeter from a major artery, which was of incredible concern to the doctors. And they weren't really sure what was going to happen. I mean, Marty was in a phase where she was very touch and go. The police start to talk to people and figure out who would have done this to Marty. And they go to Marty's mother and Mackenzie, who are both at Marty's bedside. And they're asking them, who could have done this? They learn that Marty has an ex-husband by the name of Steve Hill. So where do the police start? They start with Marty's ex-husband. They go to Steve Hill's house and they interview him. He's very cooperative. Invites the police into his house. He runs down exactly what he did that day and tells them all about the history of his relationship with Marty. And yes, they had some rough times together, but he would never, ever do anything bad to her. And he wanted to find out who did this just as bad as everybody else did. The detectives questioned me the day it happened. So I went into a room with one of the detectives. I remember it just being a really small room with white walls. And they started asking me a lot of questions about my parents, their relationship. If I ever thought my dad would do something like this, and I just remember being so upset and so defensive, my dad would never do anything like this. It was never a thought that crossed my mind, and it made me so upset, and it really still does to this day, that he was a suspect, you know, because they really had no one else to look at. So Marty made it through her first night after her attack, and... Mackenzie had to go home and go to sleep and try to carry on as her mom is fighting for her life and they have no idea who attacked her. And as the days went on, I did stay at my dad's house. We were both so scared. I slept in my parents' bed with the door locked every single night with a shotgun next to the bed because it was the only thing that made us feel safe. And every morning getting ready for school, I couldn't blow dry my hair in the bathroom without my dad sitting right there next to me. I just, something about not being able to hear what was going on around me was just really unsettling. After the police were confident that Marty's ex-husband Steve wasn't involved, they wanted to know what else she did with her spare time. Who else could she be seeing? Who else is she involved with? Marty's mother said that she didn't know if Marty was dating anybody, but if she wasn't working, she was at home. That's it. That was what her life was. So at this point, there's very, very limited information as to who Marty might have been with or who she might have been in recent communication with. So as police questioned Marty's family at the hospital, officers were also scouring the crime scene for clues to see what they could glean from this scene, trying to figure out how and why Marty was targeted and ultimately attacked. So they're initially thinking, maybe this was a robbery. But as they canvassed the Hill home, it seemed that nothing of value was missing at all. She even had cash laying out. And her purse was on the counter, as the responding officer had seen initially. Why was Marty targeted? So the detectives also went to Marty's office and spoke to her co-workers, who were also friends of hers. They were trying to get a sense of Marty's routine, the people in her life. They were looking for anything that could lend a clue to what direction they should go in to try to figure out who would have done this to this mother of two. And they also learned something else. They learned that 
somebody had broken into Marty's mother's home a few days before Marty was attacked. Maybe it was connected. And the police really didn't know what was going on here, but it's something that was interesting that they had to put on their radar. This could be connected. So the police keep digging, and they learn from Marty's mother that a company had recently done work at her house, and it was called B&J Construction. And she actually told Marty, you should use this company, um, you know, and give her a, give them a reference. And Marty had mentioned in passing that there was a guy whose name was Brian, and he'd been sent to her home to complete work, and she thought he was a nice guy. And Marty's mother thought Brian was a good family man, good hard worker, and he actually did good work. So Marty used him because she had some stuccoing inside her house that needed to get done, and he did a really good job. So police raise their eyebrow at that, and they say, okay, well, let's give Brian a call. They get Brian's number. When they call Brian, they don't have his last name. They just know his name is Brian. Brian calls him back, and he says his last name is Brian Pennington. He's 26 years old, lives in Leeton, Missouri, which is about 90 minutes from the Kansas City metro area. And the police, you know, this seems pretty innocuous. Okay, this is just a handyman, but like I always say, if it's not the husband. It's the handyman. It's the handyman. But they decided that, all right, we need to talk to this guy. So two nights after the attack, they get to Brian's house. The police enter the small house, which was home to Brian, his two young kids, and his 20-year-old wife, Jessica. It's a little after 9 p.m. And the house is pretty secluded, pretty dark. They knock on the door. Brian answers, lets him in. Come on in. Let's talk in the kitchen. Very cooperative respectful, polite. And there was audio recorded from these casual questionings at Brian's home. How long did you work at Brian's house? Um, I'd say three or four days. What did you think when you heard that Marty got attacked? I really didn't know what to think. She's a really, really decent lady. Have you heard what happened to her at all? No. My mother-in-law was looking on the news channel earlier and showed pictures of her house and stuff. I really didn't know what to think. So you did work on the inside, work on the outside. She she eventually ended up paying you for the work you did? Yeah, she paid me before the first thing. I had rent and stuff I had to pay, so she paid me and I was supposed to get a hold of her within the next couple weeks to go over there and touch a few things up, trim some limbs and stuff. And I ain't, I ain't hurt that much. So you were supposed to go back then? Yeah, I was supposed to do a little few outside things for her, trim limbs, put power lines, stuff like that. Okay. Um, well, I told, her, be, to go back over I told there. her it'd be a week or two after Labor Day, and I haven't contacted her. Okay. Um, How much does she pay you? Uh, she paid me 500 for the work, for the work that I did. Okay. Then he starts talking about his financials. I'm so far in debt right now, I can't afford to go to the gas station, really. My mom gave us gas money to go down there and help her, and that's as far as I've been in the last couple of weeks. When they check Brian's ID, they realize it's uh, expired by quite a while. Have your driver's license? It was suspended about, say, six years ago. Was it? For no proof of insurance. Really? And it took six years? They. Well, I got caught couple times and then I spent a little while in jail. Where's that at? Huh? Where were you in jail at? Uh, Leavenworth. How long were you in there? Like city jail or? Is... Yeah. County. Okay. County? Six months. Six months. When was that? About, well, not too long after I lost my license. It was about five years ago. Have you been out of jail since then though? Yeah. Oh. While Brian is answering these questions... The detectives are looking at him, and they notice that he has several scratches on the left side of his face. And when they ask Brian about this, Brian claims that his pit bull playfully pawed him on the face and caused these marks on his face. The detective isn't buying it, because when he looked at the scratches on his face, 
they didn't appear to be consistent with what a dog would do or the marks that a dog would leave. And the officer felt like maybe Brian was hiding something. And they asked him point blank if he was the one who had attacked Marty in her home. And Brian said no. And Brian kept stressing to the cops that he was having financial difficulties and there was no way that he could drive to Kansas City to commit this crime. And this was due to the fact that he didn't have enough money for gas. And it was an hour and a half away after all. They also go into the living room of the house and they speak with Brian's wife, Jessica. And they ask her where Brian was the morning of the attack. Was he at home? Hi, Jessica. How are you? Hold on. I'm Detective. You're Brian's wife. Um, have you done laundry at all this week? When do you remember when? I do laundry every day. Have you washed any of, any of Brian's clothes? Every day. Every day? Okay. Have you ever seen any blood or anything on his clothes at all? No, no reason that he has any blood? just oil and... Uh, used to be metal shavings, but he don't work for the union no more. Yeah. But no. And money's tight right now, right? I think we've talked about that. It's it's tight it's everywhere. It's not a big issue. We got our bills paid, and yeah. I have a mom that's... She helps out. Just you two live here with your two kids? Mm-hmm. How old are they? Um, one's one and one's six months. One and six months? Okay. Well, one's almost two. Um... And just to confirm, uh, you're saying Brian has been here. Okay, we're we're uh, we're trying to figure out what's going on here. Okay, I know. we have no doubt that we're going to find the person that's responsible for this. Brian doesn't have the heart for that. Uh, I Not, I hope so. Believe me, I hope you're right. Um, I'm just scared. Um, I've never been in this kind of situation. Yeah, and if you're telling me the truth, you don't have a thing in the world to worry about. Besides my kids. I know he did work on that house. Um, That's what I'm scared about. I took French in high school, and I was so excited that we were going to France for Jack's wedding so I could practice my French, and it was only when I got there I realized just how rusty I'd gotten, and I wanted to communicate in French with the locals there so badly. If you can relate to this experience, then Rosetta Stone is right for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast-track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's True Accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app, with audio companion and ability to download lessons offline. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. So if you're a super busy person and you don't have time to go to the gym, or maybe you just don't even want to go to the gym and work out in front of a bunch of different people, you need to check out the Aloe Moves app. I'm obsessed with this app. So it makes it easy to keep your wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place. There's yoga, there's Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, and so much more. So either you're a beginner or you're an advanced person, Aloe Moves has the flow or class that will fit your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending depending on what you're feeling that day. So even if you only have five minutes, you can just get some movement in. I used Aloe Moves all during the pandemic. It was amazing. Like I was on my yoga journey and I was obsessed with it. So you can find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quiet moments, even if you don't really want to get a workout on. And when it comes to sleep, it's just important as fitness and nutrition, and they've got you covered with Aloe Moves. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to Aloe Moves com and use code FIRST for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code FIRST, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code FIRST. 
Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on The First Degree, and when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV, and that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash first. Thrivemarket.com slash first. So Jessica said that on the night Marty was attacked, Brian was home with her. And Jessica said that he had finished up that job the month prior, and he'd been home two weeks straight, night and day. He wasn't going anywhere. He ain't going nowhere in the night. I can't sleep at night if he's not here. That's what she said. He ain't going nowhere in the night. He ain't going nowhere. So then the detective asked Jessica about the scratches that he saw on Brian's face. Do you know how he got those? And Jessica said, they're from the dog, I swear. I swear. And the detective... Likely story. It's never the dog. It's never the dog. And the detective... How many times has a dog scratched her face? Probably never. Billy? I've had my dog get scratched my face. Your face? Yeah. Like, she doesn't mean to. As a puppy? She doesn't mean to. She's just like trying to, you know, hey, come here, look at me. You're putting your face too close to a dog. But the detective... The dog? No. He doesn't believe Jessica. And Jessica's also young. She looks about 20 years old. She looks very naive. And they had two children. One was like a year and a half and one was six months. Yeah. So they're, they're getting the idea, the detectives are, that this woman's going to say anything to protect her family and protect her husband. Yeah, she needs him around. Things were already tight. After this talk... And with the scratches, the detectives think, this is our guy. And they ask Brian, do you have any clothes that have blood on them in this house? And he says, no. Immediately says, no, I don't. And we just heard the detectives ask Jessica if she had laundered any clothes that had blood on them. And she also said no. Then they ask, can we look through your clothing? And he told them, yeah, sure, go ahead. So they go into the corner of, they go into the bathroom, and in the corner, they see a hamper. And he starts pulling out clothes, finds a pair of jeans near the bottom of the hamper. And he pulls out the jeans, and he immediately sees, as a detective, they're covered with a red stain. And most of the stain was towards the knee and back down the the pant leg. So the detective asked Brian if he knew what the stuff was that was on the bottom of his pant leg. Brian said, it's grease, grease, something, I don't know. And the detective said, it's not blood though, right? And Brian said, frankly, no. But when the detective saw the stains, that was it. He's like, I think we got something. He tries to remain calm and, uh, you know, he doesn't. He doesn't want to spook Brian. Well, and, he doesn't want Brian to clam up. Yeah, yeah. Like right now, it's what detectives do. It's like they play nice guy. They don't think, we just got to get, we just got to clear you, dude, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And he's just trying to be like, how do I get him to allow me to take this? I have to act like I don't know what's what's up. Yeah. So he, he's, he asked him, can I, can I take these jeans from your house? And Brian writes a form, fills out a form. Uh, which is a consent form that says you can take my jeans, my shoes, DNA swabs, and they also take pictures of the scratches on his face. And the detectives were 
they were like, wow, this guy's doing this. We're getting this cooperation. And they found, you know, they probably thought once they found the stain with the blood that he was going to completely clam up. Yeah, of course. But he just kept going and said, yeah, take all the stuff. That's totally fine. And then they start to doubt then because maybe that was innocuous. Maybe that was a grease stain or something. Maybe this isn't our guy. Why would you do that? Why would you just hand everything over and just say, here, here you go? Well, they let they let the police rummage through the house, look in the dirty laundry, take his shoes and things like that, too. So it's like, I don't know, maybe he didn't do it. He's handing this stuff over pretty confidently. Mm -hmm. So the detectives in this situation are clearly dealing with some mixed signals. On the one hand, Brian had recent contact with Marty. He had worked for her. He admitted to that. She had paid him $500 for the work that he had done on her home. But on the other hand, what would drive a 27-year-old man to attempt to attack and kill a 44-year-old woman who hired him for some contract work and nothing else? Not only that, I mean, he had been working for Marty's mother, Shirley, for nearly two years. You know, there was no sexual assault. He lived an hour and a half away. There's no obvious motive. You know, this wasn't computing. And now he was handing these pants with red stains over willingly to the police for testing. Is this something a guilty person would want to do? The police left Brian's and drove straight to the crime lab. They got there around 11 p.m. And within 30 minutes, they figured out that the genes tested positive for human blood. Okay, so they have a yes for blood, but they don't know who the blood actually belonged to. It could have been anybody's blood at this point. He does contract work, so really could have even been his own. So they'd have to wait a couple more days to determine who the blood belonged to with DNA testing. So following the visit to Brian's house, the detectives were contacted by the hospital. And at first they feared the worst. They feared that this attempted murder case was actually going to turn into a straight up homicide case that Marty had died. But that's not what happened. They got a call that said, Marty is not only alive, she's recovering, she's conscious, and she's talking. Thank God. I know. We feel like we we never have cases Where they that end up like this. I know. It's so amazing. It's actually pretty shocking. So this happened on a Wednesday. On Saturday is when we actually got a phone call saying that she's talking and she just said, Brian. My grandma was right there when she said it. And so because my grandma had already given the name Brian Pennington, they were able to put that together very quickly. But the police did get the DNA results back and the blood found on Brian's genes was, in fact, Marty Hill's blood. And with the conclusiveness of DNA evidence, they knew that they had plenty to issue an arrest for Brian. Five days after the attack, on Monday, September 13th, the police drove to Brian's in Leeton, Missouri, and found him driving down the road. He was laid back in the front passenger seat, attempting to conceal himself from view as his wife drove the vehicle. So, they took him into custody. And when the police took him into custody, this guy showed no signs of being upset. He showed no signs of anger. There was absolutely no emotion. Nothing. Apathy. Total psychopath. Or in just total denial. So one thing that's interesting um, is when Marty's mother, Shirley, found out that Bryant was the one who was responsible for this. I mean, I mentioned earlier that he had referred Brian to her daughter, Marty. And, you know, Shirley had known him for years and knew his wife and knew his young kids. And Shirley felt responsible. She nearly fainted when she found out that he was the one responsible. But in my personal opinion, Shirley cannot blame herself. Because when you have a healthy brain, like presumably me, Jack, and Billy, who's sitting over here being really quiet, does, you're not constantly trying to prove that people in your life are dangerous. Your radar isn't up, and you're not constantly looking to smoke out wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. There's no way to know who of these strangers around you could be dangerous. And the only person responsible here is Brian. Mackenzie and her family are dealing with a lot of questions and a lot of fears. You know, um, Marty's recovery, the prosecution of this criminal. But one of the most glaring questions was why? Off the bat, the confusion about motive here is insane. I honestly, to this day, just don't know. And that's something that 
I've kind of come to terms with and I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about myself as to why it would be because I know she's such an amazing person. It's almost like he knew she was this perfect person and maybe he would never be that or maybe he would never have that. I truly don't know. I know that's something that she's struggled with a lot is understanding, but ever since the beginning, the detectives have really just assured us that we don't think that way. You know, we don't think like someone who could commit an act like this thinks. And it's just something that we won't ever understand. And when I was talking to Mackenzie, I pointed something out and I said, you know, the night before the attack, you slept at your dad's. But if you had slept at your mom's, you would have been there while this happened. I would have been there. And that's something else I've seen. Obviously, people people write all kinds of crazy stuff online. But something I saw that made me stop looking at all those things, um, someone actually had commented somewhere or written something that said, you know, I think what happened was he had gone to kill Mackenzie. I think he had gone for the daughter. And I guess the way I always just kind of rationalized it, or the way I always dealt with that was, well, that doesn't make sense because I had never met him. But you're right. And yeah, I definitely would have been there. Part of me goes back to, if I was there, would it not have happened? There's so many ways to think about it. There's so many ways to look back, but we truly can't change anything that happened. And I think if there's anything I've learned from my mom, it's just thinking forward, being positive, and not spending your time on those things that give you stress or anxiety. Brian was charged with attempted first-degree murder. And what's interesting is that they must have at this point believed Because second degree would have been if it was impromptu. So at this point, they've pieced together that, oh, you didn't have an appointment with Marty. You drove directly there. For the sole purpose of trying to kill her. her. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't steal anything. Like, it seemed like a very planned. I mean, they must have had information within their investigation that we're not privy to. I mean, maybe they pulled surveillance. Maybe they, Lord knows, they're tracking everything we do. But they had reason to be like, oh, you weren't there. This wasn't a crime of opportunity. This was something you planned. Right. And Marty's recovery was slow, arduous, and painstaking. She said, I don't remember those first days. I don't remember feeling any pain. I do remember feeling like I had too much medicine in me. I didn't feel good. I believe that it was the third day when I started speaking. Suddenly, it all kind of flooded back. What had happened? There were no questions. I knew who it was and what he had done. So, and that was Marty's perspective on the recovery, but... Marty's doctors described the initial recovery days as Marty's brain was stunned and in complete shock. And that kind of head trauma when you have the swelling that she had and your brain is sort of in survival mode and you forget things and, you know, she could walk, but it wasn't pretty. I remember in that room, her eyes were so swollen that she had to almost pinch it with her two fingers to open her eye and she would just open it up and look at my brother and then look at me and then close her eye and the way that she did that just seemed like she was able to be at peace in that moment seeing us knowing we were there with her so one of her eyes wasn't tracking so her because of the brain trauma only one of her eyes was able to move and the other one was just straightforward and I remember that was something I was so concerned about just because you know you meet someone for the first time and you look them straight in the eye and that's what you see and looking herself in the mirror and that was just something I was so scared of would be a constant reminder of what happened but it did go back to normal and it it honestly is truly incredible how she looks today. She was starting to really heal. Her face The swelling on her eyes was going down a little bit. The color of her skin changed from purple to pink to like more of a green and yellow. And I remember she looked in the mirror one day and just said, well, I don't look very good today. And it was in that same moment I was in the bathroom with her helping her go to the bathroom. 
helping her sit down, helping her stand up, and taking her back to the bed. So a lot of what I did was really being able, being almost like the parent, and that's what made me feel, I don't know really, that's what made me feel like I was helping and like that was normal and it was really what felt right to me was just, I'm gonna do everything I can to help get her back to her. I mean, all of those nerve endings in your brain, when they get severed, when they get damaged, have to work to repair. Yeah. And brain injuries are really scary in that sometimes you have a brain injury, they're confident something will come back. Those nerves will repair. Sometimes there are nerves that are in this gray area. Like sometimes it comes back and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes like when you have a spinal injury, they're like this, these don't repair. Yeah. So brain injuries are very scary for people in that way. And it's like some people revert back to childhood and, and can't take care of themselves. And there was a lot of concern here, but luckily, I mean, Marty was mending and she was healing and she was doing her best to heal given the circumstances. And as far as our cognitive abilities, she would change topics at the speed of light. So she was having some difficulty with concentration too. And the stronger that Marty got, the more she was able to recount of the morning of her attack. Here's what happened in Marty's own words. I had gotten up early. I heard a knock at the door. Looking out the window, I saw that it was Brian Pennington. I couldn't really understand for sure why he would be there. It was odd that he was there that early. It was odd that he didn't call first. I remembered that he lived far away, about an hour and a half away. I rationalized his presence on my doorstep. He must be working in the area and wondering if I have more work that needs to be done. He never voiced this. It was odd for him to show up that early. He'd never arrived that early when he had come to my house previously for work. Looking back, I realized that I had an odd feeling about this, but I ignored the significance of my instincts. I didn't want to be rude. I went to the door and I let him in. And I remember it just being a fairly brief conversation. He mentioned that he remembered something that was in the basement that he thought I should have done. I was very close to being ready to leave for work. We had someone in our department on vacation and I wanted to be there a little early. I didn't think too much about this because he knew that I was getting the house ready to be put on the market. So we started walking to the basement. I was leading. I, I do remember talking, but I also felt like he was being quiet. Like you would at least say, huh, what, huh, okay. I was getting an odd feeling as we were going down the stairs and then just two steps from the bottom of the stairs, he grabbed my throat. It was very tight and very strong. I kept saying, what are you doing? And it was just silence. He never said a word. I remember thinking that I should know what to do when someone strangles you. I should know how to get out of this. My voice faded quickly and I passed out. I came to and tried to fight back, grabbing at him. Everything happened so fast. I told him to get out of my house and again asked him, what are you doing? My voice kept getting lower, softer, and suddenly my voice, I couldn't speak. My voice couldn't come out and I passed out. I was left on the floor in the basement. Everybody loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. So it's going to take you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. I'm really feeling this because Lex and I both are really like into Gatsby stuff right now. So I am loving the vibe of this game. And you're going to step into the role as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. It's perfect for all of the firsties out there. There's mystery, danger, and romance as you search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. And you can customize your very own luxuries of state island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Android. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. 
And there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Get started today and get after your goals. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. For me, I was really struggling to get enough protein. I always do. But Factor's meals are protein-packed, and they're so good. And it's so easy when I'm slammed busy working in the middle of the day to just have lunch right there, not needing to do anything, except heat it up. Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 to get 50% off. After the arrest, as Brian sat in custody, the police learned that he had a prior police record. And I watched a police officer conduct an interview about the case, and he said that Brian had over 60, 60 contacts with law enforcement officers. And he was involved in several domestic violence incidences where injuries occurred to wives, to girlfriends. So battering women was not new to him. Right. And Jack and I were talking about this before we recorded On the heels of hearing that, I was like, okay, let's see what we can find about some of these prior instances. And I did a deep dive into, I'll be clear, just Missouri and Kansas. Yeah. Because I don't know where else he lived because there's nothing really on him. And I didn't, I did a like background search and there aren't any other states. So that was my best deductive reasoning, trying to figure out where I could find records. There's no records of any of his other infractions. I was saying to Jack, how would Marty, if Marty knew this guy was coming over and knew his name and... And you wanted to just take a cursory look at who this guy who was coming into your house where you would be home alone is. Mm -hmm. If she had done a search, there would have been nothing. And I always just wonder, and we struggle with this. We always talk about how important it is to protect your civil liberties. But on the other hand, it's also important that if you've had a horrible track record, if you have a checkered past, if you have violence against women in your background, which can be a you know, an indicator of a multitude of things. I mean, shouldn't we as women and men too be protected from violent individuals or at least have the chance to opt in or out of being in their presence? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the thing that I always struggle with in that regard. And there was nothing on this guy. There was no way Marty could have known. Luke Roth, one of the detectives on the case, believed that Brian Pennington is evil. He noted that not only did Brian strangle Marty initially, he then beat her head into the concrete floor, which caused multiple facial fractures. And if that wasn't enough, he then slit her throat three to four times, leaving her to die in her basement that morning. Detective Luke Roth also said that Brian was surprised when the cops showed up at his door. And he was even more surprised to hear that Marty Hill was still alive. Brian intended to leave no living witnesses that morning. And although Marty maintained her strength and perseverance through her attack and her recovery, there was still one more terrifying obstacle for her to overcome. She had to face Brian in court. I mean, I don't think I can ever understand how truly hard that was for her. Um, I think she's the only one that really knows and, and felt those emotions. I know watching her walk up there, she was still healing, so it was slow. Um, Our attorney was incredible. She was there for her, really just emotionally, too, to help my mom get through it, and walked her up to the stand where she had to identify who it was. And I just have so much respect for her even being able to do that as as that might have felt something so natural to her, you know, this is what I have to do. It, it took so much strength to, to do it. One point where my brother and I were sitting on the side that he was sitting on and the police officer had to come over and ask us to move because I think they could just read us. We were so mad. And in court, it was really the first time that Mackenzie and her family actually heard about this person who savagely attacked her mother, she really didn't know anything about him before. Some of the things that we started to find out, so initially 
His wife said that he was with her that night. He had beaten her. She had broken bones in the past. I think one of, you know, he had a crazy track record where he should have been in jail, honestly, at that point. I think he had tried to run over an ex-in-law with a car. He'd stolen things. I mean, just this crazy story. So Pennington makes a deal with the prosecutors. And he actually tries to, so he pleads guilty, but then he tries to change his guilty plea at the last second. The judge is like, no. The judge gives him 28 years in prison for this brutal knife attack on Marty. So what did Mackenzie think about the sentence? For him being so young, I I truly don't think it's enough time. Um, if we would have gone to trial, he could potentially could have gotten up to, I think it was 54 years, which still wouldn't have been enough. I think he should be in prison for life. I don't think someone who can commit an act like that should ever have a chance to be in society again. I think it's just such a risk. The thing I have such a hard time with is if she wouldn't have made it, she was literally a millimeter away from not living. And if that would have been the outcome, she would have been murdered and his sentence would have been different. He wouldn't have gotten 27 years. That's what I have such a hard time with. And Mackenzie brings up a really interesting point in that his act, his intention was to murder Marty. So the fact that she survived doesn't make him any less dangerous. So should he be locked up for less time? It's a really interesting question. How someone could do something like this, I I do think there's something just wrong with him. I do think, you know, he's a psychopath. I think that there's no other explanation. It's not something that just happens one day. I think it truly is something that, um, I mean, one thing too that just kind of attests to his life was that in the courtroom, there wasn't a single person on his side. My mom, you know, had half the courtroom and more spilling over into what was supposed to be his side just filled with support and friends and family. And I think that really attests to the type of person she was. And there's another thing that Mackenzie really wanted to bring up that kind of hasn't really been touched on in relationship to this case. What my dad went through, and obviously it can never compare to what my mom went through, but being, you know, blamed essentially, or being, you know, on the other end of this crime and having the detectives look at you where this is something I haven't really thought about until recently, but if my mom hadn't made it and my we didn't have enough evidence against somebody else, you know, what if my dad was falsely accused? And what if I just didn't have parents at 15 years old for the rest of my life? I, my life would just be so completely different. I, I don't, I feel like I wouldn't, I just, I can't even complete that sentence because I, I don't know where I would be. So one of our last questions for Mackenzie was how this seemingly random attack on her mother, which almost cost her her life, has affected her. What happened is something that I do think about probably almost every day. It's something that will affect me for the rest of my life. I do get scared sometimes, but I think the best way to handle it is really just being aware of your surroundings. I, if I were to have someone come work on my house, I would make sure that someone knew where I was. You know, I always make sure my boyfriend knows where I am or my mom and, um, or that there's someone here with me. Just kind of taking those necessary steps to be cautious just in case. And how is Marty doing today? So she's back to herself in terms of her physical appearance. Obviously, she'll always have the scars on her neck to remind her, unfortunately, of what happened. She looks exactly as if she did before, but I know she still really does have trouble rationalizing the fear that she gets when before she could, you know, kind of settle it. And I know when she speaks, it echoes. She gets dizzy. She has a hard time balancing sometimes. 
everyone needs to really understand that when people go through trauma, whether it's these, you know, the pain she feels, the echo, the, the constant reminders and just knowing things aren't the same as they were before, or if it's just an internal struggle that someone's dealing with, you just really never know. So if you can get someone to open up, you can have those conversations or at least let them know you're there for them. I think it's something that everyone can be a little bit more aware of. And as horrible as this experience has been for Marty, she has found a way to find meaning in it. And she's started doing speaking engagements and she has a website, martyhill.com. And she's basically started a foundation that provides support to victims of trauma and similar situations. Because when this happened to her, she didn't have anyone to talk to. And she found one of the only things that really helped was talking to people who had been there, who understood And Marty also has a book in progress. And as soon as it is out, I am going to buy it because the story is so inspiring. It's called A Millimeter from Murder, The Anatomy of a Survivor. And I just think it's incredible that Marty, despite this horrific experience, you've been able to do something positive with it to help others. And it's really a beautiful, inspiring message you're sending. So what do we learn today? I'll tell you what I didn't learn. (laughs) Is why he picked Marty. So, so weird. Usually, I mean, in every case that we've done, there's been some sort of a connection. There's been some sort of a motive. Even if you're seeing like lust killings or lust attackers, it's like, oh, that's why they're doing that. They have a a fetish about hurting people um, and they're getting sexual gratification. But it's like he didn't he didn't do that in this case and nothing was missing. And. She was older than him, but it's just odd. He was doing work for the grandmother at her house and then doing work for Marty. And you just don't know what he, his brain was doing. Yeah. And he hasn't, he hasn't said anything. So we don't know. Mm-hmm. And she's still confused. Well, and that's the negative about a guilty plea. Yeah. It's like they don't have to say anything. Yeah. And they didn't go for any kind of, because he did plea, they didn't, he didn't have a lawyer that tried to go for a mental illness defense or something along those lines. Yeah. So we're stuck with not knowing at yeah. all. She was like, well, it happened. Eh. Well, and that's the give and take with a guilty plea. It's like you spare the family a lengthy and emotionally traumatizing trial, but you don't get, get any answers. I mean, it's funny. We just saw this in our last two OJ episodes with domestic violence that escalated into something more. Only this time It's completely misplaced. I mean, this isn't, I mean, Lord knows what his poor wife went through, but this isn't someone he knows personally that he's escalating in violence with. It's not like he was in an abusive relationship that he ended up trying to kill that person. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like he's escalating, but he had to put it somewhere else Mm -hmm. um, and pick someone random to do that. But it just is odd. I mean, I haven't seen this before where it's like, usually this is a lust type attack and this seems to me, I mean, the fact that he drove two hours, is it was, that, it's is that also meditated. It also wasn't a, yeah, it wasn't a crime out of convenience. Yeah, no, it's not it like he just a, ran into her at a park and was like, oh, well, shit. He had he to thought been like, about I'm going to go there for two hours when he was driving. Yeah. Like you could have stopped yourself at any point in time. And the fact that there was no real connection to her that we know of, it's just so fucking weird. You're right. And, it, and it's 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 so strange. It's not strange. It's also we're just conditioned this way because when we're looking for, oh, it's a lust killing, oh, that would make sense. You know, if she's sexually assaulted, our brains would process that better because they'd say, okay, that's what you're, he was after. You're a sick bastard. Yeah. But with this guy, nothing. Yeah. So disconnected. Well, one of the last things I wanted to bring up before we end is something interesting the judge said at sentencing. He said, I guess we'll never know why Brian did this. And this is a deduction that feels, to me at least, unfinished. Because even though we're talking about a supposed lack of motive, there's always something. At least that's what we believe here on the first degree. That with purposeful actions of violence, even when the target is selected at random, there's always an explanation, even if it's buried deeply in the psyche of a pathetic criminal like Brian. There's a narrative, even if not obvious at first, there's always one that's present. Whether the act was prompted by a particular state of mind or even a desire to feel something new or reasoning inspired by fantasy or thrill-seeking, either way, 
whatever elusive motive he had or whatever feeling he was trying to incite by killing Marty Hill, his efforts failed miserably. Because Marty is not only alive, but she's thriving and she's better than ever. And Brian is rotting in jail during what's supposed to be the prime of his life. All right. Well, uh, we want to give a special thanks to Mackenzie, our first degree guest, who um, I believe her friend listens to the podcast and connected us. Exactly. Everything's connected in a weird way. One degree from everything. We are one. Well, we're two degrees. But thank you very, very much. And um, if you are one degree away from a murder or other stranger than fiction crime, please write us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com or Facebook message Billy. <laughs> <laughs> email me email i'll also read your dm but i'll just send you an email um and go get some merch first degree merch is up and popping and remember to uh enter our little giveaway contest by giving us a good review on apple podcasts including your instagram name and we'll pick two this week pick anything you want in the store any size any shape any color anything <laughs> i think they understand you know what? you deserve it best reviews most creative we're going to be going through them also tell your friends about us we work really hard we love you guys so much yeah it's our firsties our firsties it's a word of mouth thing that's how you achieve any sort of you know success in this and it's so much work so we really appreciate you guys spreading the word yes so on that note remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But, but not, not that, that close. close. Happy Bird Your House of Idaho's Day. It's happy. Um, newspaper Carrier Day. Newspaper Carrier Day. Thanks. Bye. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen. Gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.